Good morning. My name is Brad. Hi, everybody. And uh, I'm excited to be uh, with us again. Uh, I love that we gather on Sundays. It's like a great thing, right? Sometimes we need to be reminded, like, it's a good thing. Uh, in December of 1968, uh, the greatest uh, scientists and thinkers and philosophers, even the greatest nutritionists, um, rocket scientist people, we have some here. Uh, raise your hands if you're a rocket scientist so we can know. Yeah, there we go. There's some, wow, the shyest hand raising of all time. But in December 1968, the, the greatest thinkers that uh, had come to, to be around in the United States, there's a whole other group in Russia, but in the United States, we sent three men on Apollo 8 up into the sky. They were Frank Borman, Jim Lovell, and William Anders. Uh, their mission, Apollo 8, wasn't to actually get on the moon. They were just simply to travel uh, outside of our atmosphere all the way to the moon on these days-long journey. And then they were to orbit the moon, uh, get pulled into its gravitational pull, and then slingshotted back uh, so that we could see if we could do that or not. Like if we could send someone all the way to the moon and bring them back again. Along the way, they were to test uh, you know, there are radios and the, all these wavelengths, and there's all sorts of important information there uh, that Jackson knows all about that I do not know anything about. They are also the first people that got to see the earth rise above the moon. Well, I don't know if you've seen that shot, but it's the earth rising. And as they did that, and as they were beamed uh, across the nation and across the world, uh, they read out loud over the radio the creation account found in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then with Apollo 11, uh, the more famous mission, uh, they made a movie about it. It's very un-American. Um, that was a joke. <laughs> it was, I guess it was like 20 news cycles ago that that controversy happened. Anyway, Apollo 11, uh, again, the greatest scientists, engineers, uh, the most brilliant of people, uh, even the most brilliant uh, operators of machine and emotion and psychology carried with them to the moon uh, many things. Uh, they carried an American flag. They carried uh, a communion kit, uh, which they, they, uh, Buzz Aldrin uh, took communion on the moon. But they also took with them all these notes from dignitaries and kings and queens and presidents from all over the world to express just what this moment meant, that we had put people uh, walking on the face of the moon. Uh, they also brought a plaque uh, that had quotes from all of the presidents who had funded this incredible space program, that had put uh, the money of uh, the country towards knowing the depths of the universe. But on top of that plaque that they, I guess whenever we get to, to the moon... Uh, Hopefully Derek figures that out for us soon, so we can all walk on the moon. Uh, but we could see this plaque if we, if we went there, but at the very top was engraved this thing, and this is what it says. It said, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength. Because of your foes, to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens 
the works of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? This incredible feat of putting people on the moon uh, was the established and the accomplishment of uh, generations of the most brilliant people of all time. Uh, from Galileo to Newton to Einstein to von Braun uh, and many uh, dreamers and thinkers and mathematicians all in between. And when they got to that pinnacle and they saw they were able to discover and overcome uh, gravity itself, the response to that, to that discovery, was how majestic is the name of the Lord. That, that we got to the ends of heavens that we could even conceive of, and we said, God's glory must go beyond that. And, and they put on this plaque in the middle of the moon, uh, next to some crater and some footprints and car tracks, this, these words from long, long ago. After all the technology, all of that, hum- humanity conquered the skies and was left feeling smaller than ever was less thinking about God larger than ever. Uh, Today, we're talking about science, uh, which I'm totally unqualified for, but we're also talking about deep within uh, science or modern science is the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of knowledge. How do you know what is real? How do you know what this world is made of? Uh, Many uh, have claimed that our culture has moved far beyond the myths or the legends of Christianity or theistic belief, and that that its science and faith is completely incompatible. Uh, To be a Christian means you hate science, Uh, you hate all of it. If you are uh, a scientist, you must hate God. Those are the two ways to look about it. Um, it's really wonderful. Uh, uh, Charles Dawkins wrote a really great uh, book in which he talked about how there is no watchmaker, and anyone who does is a fool. Alvin Plantinga, he's a Notre Dame philosophy professor. Uh, I hear that's a good school. He wrote a book uh, called Where the Conflict Really Lies. And in it, he says, science does and should enjoy a particularly high regard among Christians. That, that everything that I described about these scientists that are pursuing all of this discovery in space and are still doing so, that's one of the greatest, most noblest things we could ever undertake because we, in, in, under each thing that we discover, we see uh, the very character of God. So, so science should have a particularly high regard among us. But I do think that... Uh, that conflict feels very real most of the time. Like to be a Christian, to believe in the Bible, and to uh, walk in a world in which we enjoy the fruits of all of this technology and discover, feel, discovery feels like a lie, or at least feels uh, inner, uh, disconnected from one another. Uh, this morning I want us to look mostly at Acts chapter 17, uh, verse 16 and 30, to 34. It's where Paul goes... Uh, to Athens. He has this little 
weekend getaway in the city of Athens, the center of all thinking. And, I, and as he engages with that city and the thinkers of that city, I think we get a, a really clear glimpse of what our lives could look like as we look at the, the pursuit of truth and the pursuit of knowledge up against a culture around us. So I'm going to start uh, with verse 16. It says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to the Oropagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Oropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. This passage begins, Paul's uh, on a layover in this city, but it is the city of all knowledge and understanding. Even now, there's all these cities in America that want to be the new Athens, you know, like Nashville, Tennessee. We're we're the Athens of the South. I can remember going there and walking around that city and thinking, this is nothing like Athens. (laughs) But you can have whatever logo you want. Athens was that kind of city, and Paul immerses himself in that city to to the extent where he's shopping, he's uh, doing life in that city, and he sees and he observes that the city is incredibly religious. He's even provoked within him. I think he was just going to sit there and, and wait for his friends to join him and then go on the rest of his journey, but being there and being in that city and caring for that city, he begins to speak up and talk with people. He converses with them. I think that's pretty great. We often think of Paul standing on a street corner preaching to people with a megaphone. But instead, he's in the marketplace with anyone who happened to be there, and he would talk with them. He would reason with them. To the extent where the people around him said, what does this babbler want to say? Which to me is so encouraging. Like, if we're supposed to be people that explain God to others... Paul's the the example of that. Like, he's the best. Uh, He gets to be called Apostle with a capital A. Like, he was very good at that. And all the people around him said, what is he talking about? Makes me feel good. Later on, you can say, what is that babbler talking about? And someone else will have to explain it. But he talks with them. And and among the, the thought leaders that he talks with are Epicureans and Stoics. The Epicureans were materialists. They just believed in in the material world. What you see is what you get. Uh, They believed that that pleasure is the greatest good. Uh, There's a popular thing right now. You can do an Epicurean feast where it's just like decadent foods and you can just absorb them into your body. Uh, I have one of them almost every day, you know. Uh, Obviously. Uh, but 
that's kind of going a, a bit distant from the actual beliefs of these Greek people. They thought that everyone should live in such a way to maximize their pleasure and their feeling of good, their happiness. Everyone should just uh, calculate what would bring them the greatest enjoyment. But this is what was weird about them. The, the way, their calculation of how to get the most, happiness, the most happiness you could out of life was to live modestly, to not try to do too many extravagant things, and then to know how the world works. So to, to understand uh, how plants and weather and all of the seasons of life, to understand how the world works and how nutrition works and to know how alcohol works and just to know how the world works, but also to know how you know, street smarts, how the world works. Then if you, if you live modestly and you know how the world works, then the last thing that you need to do is limit your desires. Lower your expectations. And then once you lower your expectations and you live modestly and you know how the world works, then you'll experience pleasure. And you'll enjoy it. You'll live forever enjoying this sort of happiness. They described it as tranquility and the freedom from fear. Tranquility, this peace of knowing how the world works and being okay with it and enjoying the fruits of the world because you're not trying to to get anything from it. That was the Epicureans. Stoics are a little different. It was founded by this guy named Zeno. He was a merchant who got shipwrecked and he lost everything. And then he went to Athens and he began to engage and and develop this philosophy that that continues very strongly even to this day. And in uh, this philosophy, they said, there's this web, this mysterious, invisible web of cause and effects in the world. And that the one thing will happen and it will lead to all these ripple effects in different areas of life. And that's just how the world is. And none of us can control the web of cause and effect. But we can control how we respond to it. We can, we can control how we deal with this world of chaos. And uh, I think he was making a lot of sense for himself as a person who was shipwrecked and lost everything. But the way to control ourselves, the way to deal with the world, is through virtues. One was wisdom. Again, understanding how the world works. The other was temperance. Not getting too drunk or not getting out of control. Moderation, again. Then another one was justice. Meaning that people would be dealt with in the same way. Fairness. Like he was maybe the founder of the child thing of that's not fair. You know, and everyone should just do what's fair all the time. And then the last virtue was courage. But for them, it more like integrity. You would, you would approach each situation and each person the exact same way. Not giving to one situation more emotion than you would another. Not giving to one person more than you would another. That's what it meant to be courageous. Responding to adversity in all the ways. And after Paul reasons with these people and talks with them at length, he perceives that they're religious in every way. Every Greek city had temples, like in goddesses and gods. But Athens is different. Athens is the first one that Paul says is religious in every way. They loved hearing and saying stuff that's new all the time. They weren't upset that Paul brought them some new idea. They loved it. It was a city that thrived off pursuing that sort of knowledge 
uh, it thrived off trying to explore and understand more and more how the world works. And he perceived that they were religious in every way. And I think as we think of our own culture, some things have changed since then, I would say. Uh, our, our whole view of pursuing truth today uh, includes the Epicureans and the Stoics, but it, it moves even beyond them. It includes Plato and Aristotle, and then it moves all the way into the scientific method and the Enlightenment. That we can order uh, experiments and observe the world and find the natural laws that undergird everything. That through this uh, very clear process of creating theories and then examining which one, uh, if our theory proves true or not, we can come to some facts. And with those facts, we're armed with these natural laws that then we can, with really great uh, predictability, decide and control the web beneath it. See, the, our, our, our current worldview is that as we understand the cosmos, we'll be able to formulate an understanding of how the world works with perfect certainty. And if we understand how the world works with perfect certainty, then uh, we can make decisions. Unlike the Stoics, we don't just have to control how we respond to the world, we can control the web itself. We can understand the causes and effects, and we can change them. You can control the web beneath it. The presupposition is, if you, if you absorb all the physiology, the psychology, uh, the physics, all of that data, then you can know if you do X, you'll get Y. And you should raise your expectations, You should raise your expectations on how long you'll live, on how far you can travel. You should raise your expectations of how good your life will be and how comfortable and how easy because we've with great certainty have understood the web of cause and effects. We've learned the laws. And so what we should do, the best way to enjoy our lives is to learn how the world works. And that's part of uh, every aspect of our society. That's uh, parenting. You know, if you just understand uh, child development, and if you understand nutrition, and if you understand uh, all of these things, then you can produce the perfect child. The same is true with uh, business management. Uh, I went to business school. Uh, Mostly it was math school, which was a total uh, shocker for me. I thought I was going to learn how to manipulate people, and there was only one class on manipulating people. And all of that was just about, hey, if you do these certain rules, you'll get what you want. Like, if you follow these things, that you can take money from people, you can give people money. That's the best way to manipulate folks. You can make them feel like they're going to get fired. You can make them feel like they're going to get promoted. Those are the ways. And it's a science. It was called management science. <laughs> That's also how education works. That's how politics works. That's the theory, and that's the law beneath everything. But Paul doesn't just explore uh, and reason and talk with people. He also uh, offers up his own view, which is what he gives at the center of this very uh, philosophical city. He says in verse 23, after he calls them very religious, he says, For I... For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord and of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. That they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Being then offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. As he engages, he tells them and he begins to explain this other God. They had uh, temples throughout the city. They had altars. They had statues. And on one of them uh, was simply a plaque that said, this one's for the God we don't know about. Where our knowledge ends. One of the things that makes, uh, made the Greeks so powerful in all of their learning was that they assumed there was stuff they didn't know. It's also one of the things I've observed from, from most of the scientists that I've inter- interacted with is, is they believe there's stuff they don't know, which is why they pursue it more and more, right? Yeah. Uh, the crowd over here is helping me understand if I'm <laughs> on science or off science. Uh, there's this pursuit of, of the things that are still unknown. And so the Greeks said, there's probably someone or something out there that we haven't accounted for. And that's the spot for them. And he goes on to say, look, that God that you say you don't know, I'm here to tell you about that God. It's the God who made the world and everything in it. Paul tells them a short story. He says there was a, the world exists from this point of God. From God creating, forming, shaping everything. And that he's not just a creator of the God, but he's actually Lord over it. That God didn't just create and disappear and peace out, but God created and actually controls and ordains. Later on, he says that that God has ordained the places and the times of people. That he says there's a story where God is the creator. And God is the Lord of, of the highest heavens and the lowest of earth. He goes on to say he's not served by human hands as though he needs something. That he exists completely sufficient on his own. Not needing us for anything. Yet, and this is what's amazing, and this is what Psalm 8 is describing as well. It's what the astronauts were amazed by. It says, he gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. He's not just created, but he actually is intimately close and aware and sustaining all life. Not just in charge of all life, but he's sustaining, holding it all together. Not just our life and our breath, but every creature, everything that has life within it, God is breathing and close to. And then he describes why God did that. 
God created a world that, that man would find him. That, that humanity would know him. That in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth so that, and us as humans, and he breathed into us. In Genesis, it says that God got down into the nostrils of Adam and, and blew into his life. Breath. God created humans that we would find our way toward him and know him, and obviously something is broken and wrong with that. Because now we're just sort of clawing through the darkness, trying to find him somehow or in some way. And then he says, yet God is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. For we are his offspring. We're not randomly put here by some sort of chain of cause and effects, but we are known, and God is knowable. We are his offspring. And we shouldn't think of God as something made or fabricated. He's not gold that we can explore and examine to know just the the properties of him and where to locate God on the, the periodic table of elements which is a drawing I saw 12 years ago. (laughs) He's not that. He's not some sort of art piece that we get to come to and examine and say, what do you perceive Michelangelo was trying to do with the finger and the little finger and trying to, like, touch? I've I've been there, and I would just say this. uh, It's a terrible way to put a painting on a ceiling. Anyone been there? Like, it hurts so much just to look at it. So I don't even remember much about it. Because you're just like, you're like that the whole time. Anyway, we should tell them about it sometime. And if you're thinking about putting a painting, don't put it on a ceiling. It's just inconsiderate. (laughs) But he says, God is not like a piece of art that we examine or that we explore. He's not something from the imagination of man. Here, Paul is is pretty much talking directly to their love of talking about things that are new and exploring things that are new. Like, Like God is something you can sit around with your pipe and beer and just sort of discuss. He's saying, no, we live and move and have our being only through Him. See, the conflict with uh, modern science is not over the date of when the earth was made. It's if this world is purposefully and personally made and held up by a God who's known. The conflict isn't uh, if the scientific understanding is true or not. It's whether uh, we are ourselves purposefully made as the offspring of God. Or if we're simply what you can see and observe in a cadaver lab. Is that what humanity is, or are we more? Paul says God is not controlled, God is near. He's unconformable. He's not a material that we examine, but every material points to Him. He's a God that can be found. If we perhaps feel our way toward him, we'll find him and know that he's not far from each one of us. 
Paul isn't saying that their studies and that their learning are complete junk and should be disregarded. Like, what are you doing all day? Thinking and learning. Going to school. In fact, he he engages it and he uses their arguments. The two most, most powerful parts of this whole section come from Greek philosophers and poets. He's just, he's finding the truth within their learning, but he's also saying Christianity offers a completely different view of reality than what you view. That there is a reality, uh, all of the things that you're observing, there's a God who's, who makes the world different than you think. I think a lot of times the, the conflict that we feel between science and truth and knowledge and Christian belief is that uh, most of us might think that the Christian worldview, believing in God creating the heavens and the earth, rising from the dead, all of these huge you know, miracles, that's like an alternate universe. Some of us get to inhabit, right? And then there's the real universe that we all inhabit. And we're kind of like these go-betweens. Like sometimes we hop over here and God is you know, in charge. And then over here in this world, when we go to work and do whatever, like God is not in charge, we're in charge. Right, But what, makes, uh, what Paul is saying is so unique is he's saying the gospel offer, offers us just a different purpose and understanding and interpretation of the exact same world. Not a different world, the same world. So Paul then, he doesn't just share his thoughts, he then uh, challenges theirs. He says in verse 30, "...the times of ignorance God overlooked." But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed appointed, and that he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you about this again. So Paul went out from their midst, but some joined them, him and believed. Among them were also Dionysius of Areopagite and a woman named Demarius and others with them. Paul isn't just saying God's creator and close. Like that's an that's a eloquent uh, explanation of just any sort of theistic belief. That God is a creator and close. But he's saying he's also redeemer and he's named, and he's knowable, and he's specific, and it's in the one that he appointed, and the one that he rose from the dead, that God is made known in him, in Jesus. And that that all of the learning that they've done, and the world that they've explored, and the conclusions that they've come to, and the, the story that they've understood, is fine and good. But the story that he offers is the true story. To, to understand it in any other way is to misunderstand their own world. Paul is saying here at the end where he says, the ignorance of God overlooked. Man, I, we should use that phrase more, right? With our friends. We should use that in Young Life Club. You know, like, God's overlooked your ignorance. But now he demands you to respond. That challenges us deeply, but it's true. God overlooks us and the things that we do not know. 
I think even if you look back to those people standing on the moon, God's saying, your ignorance I overlook. There's things about the cosmos you do not even understand, and you're thousands of years from even coming close to understanding. But I've made myself known in Jesus, repent and believe. See, the world, uh, our history, is filled with tons of people that have written myths. Like there's lots of myths and legends and uh, beliefs. Uh, like you can uh, look at Marvel if you want, and that's a whole you know, unique reality. Uh, that's a movie, I think. A series of movies, Ellie says. Uh, or you can look really deep within uh, what people believed in uh, Egypt or in ancient Mesopotamia. And the world's filled with all these myths and legends. There's even fables, all of which are trying to explain the human situation. Like, this is how we got to be here, and this is how you should live. In the same way of the Stoics and the Epicureans. Hey, look, this is what the world is like. Now do these things uh, because of the story that we told you. What's unique about the story that we tell as the church is that we're essentially a competitor in the field. We're not saying, hey, here's some myths about Jesus. Here's some myths about the world and how it's formed. And if you follow these things, you'll live a better life. You'll get more happiness. You'll at least be able to respond to adversity better. No, we're not offering parables or fables We're saying, no, we've looked at the same history that the world has looked at. And we're just saying this is the true interpretation of the exact same data. That that everyone in this world, in our Western world uh, particularly, has access to the same data we have. The same information about a God who was born in Bethlehem, who lived a life, who was wonderful, beautiful, taught all these great things, who died on a cross, and then later was raised again. Everyone has access to that same list of events. Everyone has access to the same list of of things about creation and the universe. What the, the church, our story gets to be, is not, hey, this is a whole different world, but we get to offer the world an interpretation of the exact same facts and data that they have. And what we're saying is, is that this story, what Paul is saying as well, is the story of God creating the world, making us able to know him, God entering the world so that we would know him, dying so that we could be saved and be redeemed, so that we could be one with him. That story is one that's offered up to be understood or misunderstood. And each of us, and all of the people that we live with and work with and have fun with, all of the people around us, the the very center of their lives is what they make of that story and what they make of the world. Because to misunderstand that is to misunderstand the human situation altogether. Because the story that we offer is this is what a human is, the offspring of God that God will do everything to bring back into his family. You are each person that we interact with, who they are, their human situation, is that there is a God who upholds the universe so that they might know him. The people in Greece had learned some really great stuff, but their deep assumption about the world and life was wrong. They had a small 
a little statue, figure, plaque somewhere that said, to the unknown God. And Paul used that and said, I'm telling you about him. But if, if, you, if you believe in him, you'll, you'll change everything about your city. Even as you continue to pursue learning new things. Paul says the time of ignorance is over. And he makes the appeal very personally and poignantly that there was a man who was appointed. And then that same man gives us assurance because he was raised from the dead. We can know that Jesus was who he said he was because he rose from the dead. And now it says at the very end, when they heard about the resurrection, they mocked. This is the strange thing. Before, if you remember in the early verses, uh, it's that he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection that made them think he was a babbler. They're like, this is what's crazy. See, the Greeks believed in a, in a redemption narrative that culminated in freedom from this world. That one day we die and we're not here anymore. Uh, which sounds really great all the time. Like, the Greeks were probably onto something. Like, oh, we die, and then we don't have to put up with this stuff. We get to escape the, the bounds of the body. We get to live outside, and we probably get to float around in some existence. Or maybe we don't have any existence at all, but it's probably better than this junk. That was their redemptive narrative. And so for Paul to say, yeah, and then he rose from the dead, and he came back in his body, and it's awesome. They're like, pfft. That's bad news. That's good news going in the wrong direction. Like, coming back, what kind of Savior dies this martyrous death, which everyone would say is glorious and virtuous and courageous, comes back here? That's the conflict for the Greeks. It's the same for us. In our culture, our redemptive story is we get freedom from this material world. That through all the learning, we get to control it. We get to force it into submission to give us what we want, to have autonomy from all weather and all seismic events. We could rule over it. And this way, when it says that that Jesus rose from the dead and He's the Savior who judges us. We say, but didn't we achieve a status that's beyond judgment? The conflict for them and for us is the same. That Jesus said these words, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. The Gospel claims a truth and the cause and effect and the purposefulness of God. The gospel answers that big question of like, why and what do we do? What fixes this world? What fixes me? To both the Greeks and to us, the gospel is good news. Because Jesus says, I'm the way. You don't have to escape. You don't have to control over it. You have to follow. The truth isn't distant. The truth is close. The hope isn't death and isolation or freedom or control. The hope is life with a person. The truth isn't an unorganized sequence of random events, but an intentional, personal formation around our lives. This 
phenomenal mystery that God has ordained the times and places that we might know Him. This incredible mystery. The truth actually produces wonder. And it declares to us in the stars every evening how marvelous are the ways of God. The the world that we get to discover and explore prods us with this question every day. What is mankind that the creator of that would think about you, much less care about you? That the creator of everything, even the the laughter of a young child that comes to us as a mystery, we're left saying, in him we live and move and have our being. We could spend thousands of years exploring, discovering, learning. I hope we have thousands of issues of National Geographic to just comb over in the new heavens and the new earth. And that there, we could spend a whole eternity understanding how all of the millions of planets that exist and how they function and what makes them the way that they are. And we could look into all of that, even to how a person operates and how the lungs and the blood and the hearts all work together. And we would still, at the end of all of that learning, be struck by the words, He cares about you and me. That we would, we would find uh, the greatest truth beneath uh, the microscope and we would still be amazed. He cares about us. He cares about you. So pursue science and discovery. Look to the heavens. Build spaceships that go to Mars. Uh, but you don't have to if you don't want to. Pursue the stars themselves. We should be geologists and biologists and astronomers. We should be zookeepers. We should be meteorologists. We should know and pursue all of that stuff. Just know that your work, even trying to understand what makes people laugh or what makes people weep when they hear music, all of that is theological work. He himself gives life and breath to everything. He's the maker of the heavens and the earth. So pursue all of that under your Maker, not above it. Pursue it not as God itself, but as a signpost to our God. That the God, the Maker of the heavens and the earth, is mindful of you. So as we come and we take communion, there's never a clearer picture that God is mindful of you. That God came and cared about you. That the Creator considers you worthy of being adopted as sons and daughters. Worthy of being marked as witnesses or worthy of becoming citizens of His kingdom. As we come, we remember that in His death, uh, we have life like we've never had before. Also, as you come and you take communion, you'll know that you're proclaiming a truth to one another. That Jesus is the way. He's the truth. He's the life. He's the motivation for discovering anything. He's the Messiah or the appointed one. He was raised from the dead and that resurrection is your assurance. Your confidence in life and all that is to come. 
is not by what we can understand or what we could do to cure cancer or to, to uh, touch the heavens again. Our confidence comes from He will be the one at the end that says, welcome, good and faithful servant whom I love and whom I care for. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank You for this world. Uh, We thank You for the mysteries that are underneath everything. Uh, The mystery of the human body, the mystery of the world, and uh, all that is in it. God, I pray that we would uh, declare You in worship in all of our work, in all of our learning. I pray that we would have great confidence knowing that You are not far from each of us. I pray as we take and as we eat that we would know your life, your death, your resurrection, that we would understand how you are the truth. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.